What's going on, everybody? This is Andy Morales. Welcome to episode eight, season eight of Unraveled Influence. And my guest today was a part of my open mic, Melissa Fadu. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. Thank you so much for having me. Um, this is amazing. I've never done this before. It's brand new to me. So I sort of feel like um, a little kid getting to do something for the first time. Awesome. Awesome. Uh, what an interesting year it's been, of course, but I'm excited for the new things coming in. Um, so for those who don't know, tell us a little bit about yourself. Um, I'm 44 years old. I am a teacher in Queens, New York. I've been teaching since 2002, so this, I think, is the 22nd year. Um, I teach poetry. I teach English lit um, and sometimes advanced placement psychology. Um Obviously, I write when I'm not teaching, and then I remember to breathe. Um, it's it's a difficult balance. It's a difficult balance to actually get uh, something down on the page that's not a lesson plan, but it's doable. And I sacrifice sleep, but it's doable. So, makes sense. Um, makes sense. You teach poetry, so that's pretty interesting. I definitely want to get into that as well. But speaking of poetry, um, how, how did this all start for you? Well, I, I i come from a I come from a family of storytellers, and the idea behind storytelling, reading, and writing all go hand in hand. Um, when my mother tells me this all the time, when I was in her womb, she read to me, and then I was born, and she read. She, she was always reading to us um, bedtime stories to me and my brother. Um, my father liked to tell sto- likes to tell stories about his childhood. Um, my mother has always told us stories. Uh, she grew up, they both grew up in the 1950s during a very, very different America. Um, mm. And my mother going to elementary school and her, there was this is 1950s we're still segregated and there was one black girl that entered the building and she was constantly bullied and it was my mother who actually stood up to them um so i think after hearing these types of stories over and over and over that resonates and it it lays in the subconscious so um that that's always there my I come from a family of artists as well. My mother was a painter. She graduated SVA um, in the 60s with a BFA in uh, fine arts. Um, my father is a blues guitarist. So I grew up with music all around. Um, my childhood consisted of <laughs> like Saturday morning cartoons and then the Beatles and Led Zeppelin and Jimi Hendrix. Um, my father would come home and he would go to the basement and take the day's toils out on his guitar. And it was like this electric mass uh, mass majesty that occurred until we had dinner. And it, there was always some sort of music going around. My grandmother on my dad's side was an opera singer. And when she come over, she played the piano when she wasn't playing the piano. um, She was telling me stories about what it was like to be an opera singer. um, And, and perform at the Waldorf Astoria. I mean, th- my grandparents on my mom's side, uh, my grandmother was a baby when she migrated here with her family t- from Romania. And uh, she would tell me stories about what it was like 
in terms of being in so much poverty here and trying, you know, to witnessing her parents trying to create some sort of variation on the American dream. My grandfather was born here um, and he's a Yankee. He was a Yankee. He was born in Brooklyn in 1914. Um, he did serve in World War II. Um, he didn't spend a ton of time talking to me about that. I do have stories about that. But the the stories that probably mean the most to me are his stories of being a child with his brother taking care of his mother because his father had died. And when he wasn't doing that, he was running around Brooklyn trying to get tickets to uh, go to a game at Ebbets Field to mm. watch the Dodgers. And wow. I... I grew up a huge baseball fan and that's, that's where, that's where that seed came from. Um, he'd stand outside Ebbets field as they had, you know, took batting practice. And if the, one of the guys hit the ball out of the park, he exchanged a ticket. He exchanged the ball for a ticket. That is my favorite story. <laughs> it just fascinates me. And my grandfather was an amazing storyteller. He was very specific. He always created imagery. Um, I knew what Ebbets Field looked like before I knew what Ebbets Field looked like. Um, he always spoke with an undulation in his voice uh, at the Passover dinner we uh, we had every year at my grandmother's. Um, he led the conversation. He read from the Haggadah. He was the leader. And it was pure poetry. Even if you, you didn't understand what was being said, it was the way he said it that kept you engaged um so again the storytelling i mean coming from a family of storytellers it, it you know that that hits the unconscious and when i um entered elementary school it was the 1980s it was the early 80s and creative writing was something that we did all the time um that was a major subject it it wasn't you know it it was a very different time in education uh tests were there but my teachers didn't teach to the test. And I always kept a diary and I always kept uh, a journal for school that was for creative writing. And that's where I excelled. Um, when I was in sixth grade, the first Desert Storm War occurred. And I remember my teacher asking us to write about it. And um, I was dead set against this idea of war. Mm. Um, my my oldest friend's father uh, would have us over and we'd talk about these issues. I remember being, you know, 11, 12, 13 years old, talking about these issues that seem so grown up and yet so simple and in, in what their resolution might, you know, seem, which was peace. And obviously that didn't occur. But I remember writing one particular essay um, where I used, this is so interesting. I haven't thought about this in a while. Phil Collins' song, Another Day in Paradise, to mm. as, as what I would have considered to be textual evidence at the time um, to back up my response. And, you know, it was an essay about gratitude. It was an essay about realizing who we are as human beings and what it means to be a humanitarian and how I was so against this idea of going into another country and I didn't understand this going into another country and imperializing it and um what it meant to democratize a territory where some people may have thought that was the right idea and then some other people might have thought what are we doing you know and um it 
it really, really made an impact. Um, that 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 summer led me into middle school. I, I became very depressed. Um, I had a situation happen to me that I'm not going to get into, but that led into um, a major depression. And I found, I really did find um, my salvation in my grandparents' house and through film and writing. And um, I remember my my one of my English teachers handing me a book of Edna St. Vincent Millay's poetry. And I think I read the whole thing in one night. And I came back the next day and I gave her back the book and I asked her one particular question. I said, is she a lesbian? And it was the first time I had even, I think acknowledged that word. This was not something we talked about. Like today it's talked about hopefully in, in schools. Um, and what it means to be either gay, lesbian, homosexual, trans, um, queer, whatever, whatever, however you identify, that was not something that was spoken about. And I remember her not answering me and just looking at me like, wow, okay, um, I think so. Um, that year, we also read Of Mice and Men. And that, again, I that book... That book really, really, um, I think, changed my way of looking at relationships and really understanding what love was. I remember coming in and we read the last chapter where George shoots Lenny mm. and my entire class literally was up in arms about this. And I just sat there and I was like, you're not getting it. You're not getting it. Mm. You're not getting what Steinbeck is doing here. That was a mercy killing. And she tried to explain it and they were still like, I can't believe he did that. And um, we, I don't think we really understand what love is in this country or throughout, throughout the world. And that was the perfect example of what I believe love was. And I think Steinbeck was doing something very radical there, again, with also Grapes of Wrath. We didn't read Grapes of Wrath, but we, we did do Of Mice and Men. And it was, <laughs> it, it was again, very eye-opening. Um, we also did West Side Story and Romeo and Juliet, but that seemed like less of a surprise because, you know, Shakespeare throws at you in the prologue of the very first act that they're going to kill themselves. So that was less of a surprise. Nevertheless, it resonated. Um, that, within that same period of time, um schindler's list came out and as i mentioned before um film was a very very big influence on me and i remember going to the theater with a friend of mine at the time and be and looking around and saying to her you know we're the youngest ones here and we were in a very very jewish area and i don't want to speculate and 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 assume that everyone there was jewish but everyone was older you know maybe in their 60s and 70s at that time and wouldn't be surprised if there had been any um, Holocaust survivors in it, in the audience. And I just speculated that everyone there was Jewish. And again, it moves back into understanding what it really means to be vulnerable in this country, in, in the world today. When, we, when you live in a very extroverted, invulnerable society where putting your life out there is still seen as very, very taboo. And 
in many, many ways. While Steel, Spielberg um, wasn't in the Holocaust himself, that's what he did. He brought, I, I remember being terrified. I remember sitting in that audience and watching that film and saying, I can't, I can hardly watch this and it's not real. It's a fictional, it's real obviously, but it, it, it's a film. And um, I remember thinking we, we have lost ourselves, you know, and I understood that at a very young age. And I also understood the only way for me to reconcile the idea behind, well, because I come from um, a family of storytellers and my mother has no issue and my father have no issue saying, this is how I feel. Um, the only way for me to reconcile that is on paper. Um, I am the only one in my family that's a writer. For me, words are an easier way to target um, that in vulnerability and, and the, <laughs> and I'm gonna go there too, the killing of the mockingbirds in our world. And that leads me to To Kill a Mockingbird, which th those two novels um, of Mice and Men, To Kill a Mockingbird, remain the most influential novels to me. Um, what Harper Lee was doing there, it was seen as very radical. And it's even today, it's it's being banned. It's, it's one of those banned books. And um, for whatever reason, it, I, I'm not gonna go into, you know, why some, uh, states are banning it. I think, though, the significance of it has never been more important. And, you know, I remember being at Sarah Lawrence and having a conversation with fellow poets when I was getting my MFA. And we were sitting around eating one night and we said, well, what is the point of what we do? And then one of my, you know, very bright, you know, peers was like, we're here to serve. And, and, and that's what poetry does, it serves. It's, there's a reason why um, hundreds and hundreds of years ago, people would go to poets and writers for answers. Well, now we go to sound, sound bites. We've lost something in the translation. We've wow. lost in the translation. We, we've lost um, that notion that strength lies in those who are able to say, this happened to me. I survived it and I'm passing it on to you because you know what? I think you can survive it as well. Um, that is something that comes into my book. Um, I do I, I do this, I, 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 I move all over the place in the book. It goes from um, being, it begins with me being Jewish. It continues with a poem about assault personal assault, and then it moves into, the, you know, feeling quarantined. But, you know, as, I, as I'm as i talking to you, I I think the, the quarantine for me has been all my life. The, the, the solitude that the world faced in 2020 and 2021 was something of sort of a, not an anomaly to me, um, because um, the, you know, being in solitude, it was like, a, it was almost comforting to know that the rest of the world's in solitude as well, writing, like I'm writing in solitude. I've been in solitude for a long time. Um, and uh, there was this collective solitude that was almost, it, it was very poetic. You know, we're all home. What do we have? We have our thoughts. 
we have our anger. We have the fact that we can't go outside and see the people we love. And you have to stand six feet apart and, and you can't hug and kiss the people that you want the most. And there's a very, very important, important um and I, i'm obviously not the first first person to talk about this as a writer or an artist or any medium but th- there's a very important gift in that right and and i say gift and you know some people are going to be like um she's a little off but i mean gift in the sense that it just makes it it, it reminds us of the temporary it reminds us that everything is more beautiful because it is temporary. Um, and that makes us more aware that we're finite, that, that we're, we're mortal, right? And that brings me right back to, to vulnerability. Um, the, the poems in my book, Pulse, I, 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 I really hope come across as very, very vulnerable. I, that's the whole point behind them. Um, there are a lot of poems about my students. Um, there are a couple of poems about a, the first student I had who died um, and he had cancer and watching him go through that process and understanding that there is no explanation for this. And that was actually the first time I started really, really thinking about what John Keats wrote about in his letters to his brother, which is negative capability, being okay with the mysteries of the universe and um, being okay with the uncertainties. I've never gotten over the fact that I bore witness to an eight, a 17 year old go through the horrors of his body literally being eaten from the inside out. Um, that's something that's going to stay with me. It's, 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 you know, many people know that writers write the same poem over and over and over again, just in different variations. It's because we we're we're trying to figure out that obsession, but I don't think we ever figure it out. Um, and the obsession is why did these things happen? Why does the Holocaust, why did the Holocaust happen? Why um, are the Israelis, and uh, Palestinians killing each other for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years over a piece of land. What does it really mean? And how can I, as a Jewish woman, celebrate Hanukkah right now, knowing that um, I was born a Jewish, I, I was born, my mother's Jewish, which makes me Jewish, sorry. And my father is Greek Orthodox, but in the midst of that, I'm also Lebanese. And understanding that I straddle these two, <laughs> these two worlds, um, where I don't really know how to choose a side, because terrible things are happening on both sides. And the best way I know how to reconcile this is through um, writing. I I think I understood that as a very young child that there's there are no answers. Um, and wow. Yeah. Um, no, no, this is a lot to take in right now. Cause I'm <laughs> so intrigued. Like I, I even started writing so many things down cause I'm wow. Okay. Wow. Okay. So here's the thing. Um, I love this. Everything you, I love this. This is what I live for. Like this, this, 
conversation, storytelling. I I love everything you said. Um, I I do want to ask some questions about a lot of stuff you said. Um, I gotta say, of my cement, because I actually love that book. I saw the book and the movie, so um. That's a very interesting perspective because I never saw it that way about, okay, we don't know what love is and we missed the point of the love. See, because when I, at the time, right, I took that as, wow, he had he did what he had to do to get out of trouble. But now I look at it and from the perspective you're giving is more, I think this is more unconditional love that he had no choice but to do that because he loved his friend so much. That he was willing to, you know what? I'm gonna have him live in peace, even if it has to kill my friendship with him. Like that's the way I took that. Right. I mean, there's this amazing scene where um, George goes out for a little while with with um, one um, with Slim, and I don't know. They have dinner or something, and quote unquote, he, I think he goes to a cat house, which is a what they called brothels back in those days, and he comes in and he realizes that Lenny had spent time with Crooks mm. and, and Crooks is sitting in the dark and he's surrounded by all these books. And he says to him, books are no good. Pe people need people. And when George finds that out, he goes crazy. And he's like, you're not supposed to be in there. You need to leave him alone. And obviously I'm paraphrasing this. And I, th I think in that moment, going into what you say i want to disagree a bit i don't think it was unconditional okay I, I think in that very moment it was conditional he's like because he does say to him if i didn't have you i could go to a cat house every night if i didn't have you i could do i i can work on one ranch and not have to one run from one ranch to another mm. but in that climactic amazing and i still think that's the greatest ending of any book um in that ending in that moment where he shoots him and he says, look off in the distance and I want you to imagine that farm and I want you to imagine that you're tending those rabbits, that is unconditional. Yeah. And he says, no, and he says, George, are you mad at me? And, and, Len, um, and, and George responds, no, Lenny, I've never been mad. So mm. I do think in those moments he does get mad, but in order to um, smooth the situation, in order to make it, um, one of the most, uh, what, what else could be, what, what's more difficult than that? You know, you know, in order to quote unquote, kill him in a way where he can go peacefully, he needs to tell him, no, I'm, I've never been mad. Yeah. And there was a tad of unconditional love there, but I don't know if, I don't think we're human unless there are conditions where, um, we have moments with the people we love the most where I'm like, I, I can't stand this about you, but mm, okay. <laughs> no, I'm, I love this. Oh my God. But you see, but this is what I'm saying. I love this because it's so true. Right. So in a sense, there is unconditional, but in a sense, there is conditional love because yeah. it's like, you know what? At the same time, I have to worry about myself too. And yeah. in another sense, it's like, damn, I'm getting in trouble because of you. I can't find a steady job work because of you. You are my right. best friend, but yet you are causing all this harm. And it's unintentional harm. I don't think he understands. And again, he wasn't all up there at the same time. 
And then if you look at society today, it kind of fits with the description of what we're going through in the way today too, because it's like, damn, I, I, I adore you as a friend, but it's like, damn, dude, you're, you're, you're really getting me into a hot spot when I shouldn't have to be. I just want to make a fucking living. I just want you to be my friend, but you don't realize what you're doing to cause this chaos. So it's like, fuck. It's like saying, okay, so I have to pull out, I have to, oh, what's that expression? I got to take out the... Oh my God! There's a there's a there's an expression. It'll, it'll come back to me because I feel like if I keep thinking about it, it's gonna bother me. Um, but I have to do. I have to kind of get rid of you, and I don't want to. But like, th like my mental health's in state now because I'm worried every time I go with you, something stupid's gonna happen. Right. But right. I love you too much. Like, damn, I don't want to lose you to friends. So it's like I had to pick and choose. Um, if I could take it to a biblical sense, I think about um. Abraham and Lot, like they had to right. cut ties eventually, and eventually, yeah, he understood. Abraham understood that there's certain seasons in his life that he can't take Lot with him, so he had to cut ties with him because he was always protective over him. And it's like in that same sense, I think with Lenny as well. I think he had to just let Lenny go. Like, hey, look, man, like I, I I'm gonna have to do what I gotta do. So if this is his way of cutting ties with Lenny. The same way Abraham had to cut ties with Lot, then so be it. It's going to hurt me for a while, but I have to think about my well-being as well. So it's interesting, like, how this came, became a whole conversation between you and me. I love this. Yeah. So much. Like, we need more conversations about this. Um, yeah. yeah. You brought up a lot of interesting stuff that I wanted to ask. Um You said that your parents pretty much were artists, and I love that inspiration because... It, it oh man can you talk to me about the whole um oh man okay because i'm trying to see where to start here because i wrote down a lot of stuff it seems like music was also though no, because i was okay i'm gonna start here with the solitude part because this was pretty interesting as well um because i was sheltered most of my life so i didn't really get to go outside i didn't have um i don't know if you ever seen that show boy meets world but yeah. um i i was never Corey matthews i was never i never had a topanga or 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 sean hunter like i never had that life right i was always sheltered i was the youngest and um so when you talk about solitude and everybody has to face that way around 2020 for me i feel like it, i was used to it already so i was mm -hmm. used to isolation i was used to just like if i went outside just to walk around i love it but if i'm more comfortable in solitude at home or whatever the place is i'm okay with that so for me this wasn't um, it was like, okay, just, you know, for me, it was just another day. Uh, the only scary part, yeah, just getting sick and getting contaminated with the virus that came out. And then when I went to go check on my mom in Brooklyn, because I live in Bayonne, to try to go through New York, seeing Times Square, so quiet, so ghost townish, like the way it was. To me, that was unusual, because I'm used to that area being overcrowded. So I wanted to ask you more about the solitude. Well... Did the solitude make you feel like good? Did it make you feel indifferent? Did it make you like like what is it about the solitude in your life? But, I had yeah. There were a couple of things I oh I didn't stop doing. Um, I'm gonna bring up something that's really really weird to many people. Um, I I try to go to Seven Eleven to get coffee every day. I love Seven Eleven. Yes. 
I, I didn't stop doing that. Um, one of the reasons I love the 7-Eleven, and this is, this, 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 <laughs> this revelation is very new actually, um, is because I can make my own coffee. When I was a kid, my mother took us to a Burger King, me and my brother. Um, we would go to Movie World, and then above Movie World in Douglaston, there was a Burger King. Neither of these places are there anymore. Movie World was important, and there's a poem about it in my book that I, I might read, um, because I saw the movie Field of Dreams there, and, and that was the film that changed my perspective, again, on love, um, on dreaming, on what it meant to be human. And... Above that, there was a Burger King. And the Burger King had a fountain sodas, but they didn't do it for you. You did it yourself. And there was something about, and I do think this goes into independence and solitude. Um, there's something about being independent enough, even as a child, to say, I don't need you to do my my soda. I have mm. fun. Um, you know, um, pushing against the little flap and, and watching the soda come down. The the 7-Eleven serves as something simple. I have control over it. I just spoke to you about not having control. I really don't control anything. We don't we don't control anything. I control how much co how much coffee goes in my cup, how much sugar goes in the cup, whether or want I want whether or not I want milk that day, and that's about it. And the rest is me going about my day in what in in bells, you know. Um, I, I'm lucky enough to work in a building where we don't even have bells, but we do have boundaries and benchmarks that serve as the end of each period. And then music comes on instead of bells. And I'm very fortunate about that. And I realized because the day is so complicated and I deal with so many different personalities that when I get home, any type of solitude is I'm grateful for it. I, I, I'm, you know, I have a couple of friends and my wife have said to me, you live in your own world. I have to. I, I, I grew up in a very sheltered house like you did. Um, there was there was fighting. My grandparents' house became a salvation where there was not fighting. And I built a world that revolved around the things that I felt safe around because they didn't offer any conflict. Um, mm. there, there's no conflict for me to go to 7-Eleven. It sounds so ridiculous. No, There's... it doesn't. To me, I think that's... I, I love... It's like I said before, I love stories like that because I feel like I'm seeing myself because I love 7-Eleven. As a matter of fact, uh, my team members... um. Me, Florence, and Dalton, um, right? We always debate who has the best coffee. And right. it's so funny. So I say 7-Eleven. They say Wawa. And then they're like, oh, no, but 7-Eleven's gas station. I'm like, no, it's not. Like, there's this whole thing. This is this whole funny conversation yeah. we have about coffee and another person said uh duck and donuts i'm like oh no hell no that's bad <laughs> that's bathroom coffee what are you talking about and yes florence yeah. yes dalton i am putting this on the box yeah um there's a simplicity to it that i really really need as a writer because i spend so much time in my head um because i have at any given point in time 400 thoughts roaming around at the same time who knows how many stories who knows how many poems so that's that offers a simplicity the other thing i didn't stop doing was going to the batting cage that's about five miles from where i live mm. and that was a way it was it's outside i did wear a mask sometimes that was a way for me to just 
again, baseball was my piece. And a lot of that is equated to my grandfather. And a lot of, we, we, I, we walk, we live near baseball fields. We walked to the baseball field and we played for hours upon hours upon hours. And that was my piece. So I, there's a, the batting cage that my mother took us to as a kid, I happened to live five miles from. And, uh, it was interesting. I went there, um, and I was, I'm, I'm 44, I'm going to be 45 in February and I'm in my forties and I go into the fast cage and there was an older man there who said, you know, miss, that's really fast. I said, I know I've been here before. And, um, I came out, I did fine. I came out, I, I was a little pissed off. And then he's like, I didn't mean anything by that. And I realized he didn't. And we've actually become friends and he's, uh, he's helped me improve my hitting magnificently and i miss him i mean it's the middle of december um i miss the game the game plays a really really important role in terms of keeping me grounded there's something so poetic and slow about it and there's a quiet there's a quiet to baseball that i i personally don't find in any other sport um the a moment before pitcher winds up and throws the ball there's this duel that occurs and the batter has to figure out whether or not they're going to swing even before the ball release is released you know and there's something very poetic about watching a shortstop go up in the air while he he or she is covering second base in order to get the throw over to first base in time for a double play there's something very very dance-like about watching an outfielder almost pirouette and hit up the you know the the center field wall as they're catching a fly ball. I've always found solace in that. Um, I had to do those two things in order to keep me grounded. I also worked from home um, starting that March through the next year, so I was teaching online um, for the first time, and it was a very very strange 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 um, experience. I, I've been in the building a very long time. So this is the first time I ever did anything like this. I wasn't seeing people I knew for years and I was teaching with them and we were the only ones who had our cameras on for the most part. There were a couple of kids, but for the most part, I was teaching to boxes with names in them. And I never knew whether or not they were there or whether or not they got it and we could ask questions and we might've been talking to the outer limits for all we knew. And I realized that while that in itself is devastating because I don't believe again, like it, it moves right back to um, the wars um, and war itself. I don't believe we're going to get anywhere if we do not sit down and educate ourselves in terms of not in terms of what's in a book, in terms of understanding that um, we don't need to be Kings and Queens of this world but our egos and our um, arrogance and the hubris to one up each other take over. Um, there's this unbelievable line in the Odyssey, which is a book I used to teach um, in, in chapter 11, it's called book 11. Um, Achilles is visiting, uh, uh, Odysseus is actually in um, it's, it, what I guess would be considered Hades, um, the underworld. And he says to him, um, Odysseus says to Achilles, um, 
I'm sorry. Let me hold on a second. Um, Achilles says to Odysseus, by God, I'd rather slave on earth for another man, some dirt poor tenant farmer who scrapes to keep alive than rule down here over all the breathless dead. So if you know the story of the Iliad, it's basically um, a, a story that's about rage where one character actually it, it removes himself from a war based on the fact that his colleague, his teammate, whatever you want to call them, I, I know it's not teammate or colleague, um, the, his fellow soldier takes his trophy woman away from him after they kidnap uh, women during uh, the Trojan War. And he pulls out of the war for his own selfish reasons and his arrogance, and it creates this entire um, catastrophe that is the Iliad. And he realizes after his best friend dies in war that he made a huge mistake here with his ego. And that's where, you know, that line to Odysseus comes from. I think we're yet to understand that. Wow. I think I think we're yet to understand that in the last chapter of the Iliad, you have a father that's kissing the hand of the man who murdered his son. Hector's father died. I mean, Hector died. His father comes to collect his body to have a proper funeral. They call a truce. When the truce happened in Israel, quote unquote, and uh, Palestine, I thought of that. Is it a true truce? Mm. Do we even know how to do that? Do we know how to do that? Do we know how to sit down with each other and not be so brokenhearted that our egos take over, right? It's that beautiful line and let it be. When the brokenhearted people agree, there will be an answer. Wow. <laughs> Hold <laughs> up. Wait. Wow. Wow. When Can you say that one more time? When the right. whole, Wow. I, that, I, wow. That's Paul McCartney that, you know, that's the, I think that's the last completed record, right? That Paul McCartney did with John Lennon. And Ooh. there's one, it's this, I think it's the second chorus, uh, the, sorry, the second um, verse. And when the brokenhearted people agree, there will be an answer. Let it be, let it be. And there's a religious aspect to that, that song that I really, I, I'm not religious, I dropped out of Hebrew school, which is a whole different interview. But um, um, but there's there's something there. I mean, yeah. Wow. Can we sit at the table? Can we sit at the table of life and um, disagree with each other civilly? No. Wow. I mean, even though it, it, it I feel like if. If if we just put our weapons down, if we could just let our pride to the side, let's just be humble for a second. If we could just all sit together in that table, I think we could agree to disagree without having a confrontation, if that makes sense. Um, it, it makes perfect sense. It reminds me of actually one of my poems in um, my book. Yes, please. You... Yes, agreed. Okay. Yes. So, yeah. Um, the the book is called pulse um it came out in october it's yet to be on amazon um amazon's having issues to say the least i don't know if i'm allowed to reveal what's going on so i'm, I'm not going to that's fine but um if you could get it on my uh, my publisher's website which is raw earth inc um dot com just you could type that in uh you could also get it on lulu um, there's also a link to purchase it, I think, on Goodreads right now. 
um, going back to what we were discussing, there's a poem that I wrote called How Many Lionhearted, and there are actually lines from The Tempest in it. And I, I do think this is something that Shakespeare um, touches upon. Um, the, the, the Tempest is known for its, its great line, Oh, Brave New World, which is where Huxley got his title from for his unbelievable work, Great Brave New World. So I'm going to read it. It's actually, if, if you had the book in front of you, you could see that it's written three, it, it could be read um, three different ways. I'm going to read it a couple of times. Um, how, it's called How Many Lionhearted. How many lionhearted goodly creatures heard Mercy's gavel slam? Are there here in the Pied Piper's courtroom? How Buteus hired guns, our mankind is. Lay down arms for alms. O brave new world, where light yearning to be found, we are such stuff as dreams are made on. Our little life waiting, some night song to be sung by soil, rounded with sleep, six feet deep. So again, it's like that line, um, and that's actually my line, that's not Shakespeare, lay down arms for alms. We don't know how to do that. Mm. It's, it's, it's not until tragedy really, really strikes that we say, oh my God, what did I just do? What did they just do? What did we just do? Does it matter that it's a Palestinian or an Israeli child that's dying? It doesn't. It's a human life. Um, I don't, I, again, like the artist's job is to serve. I don't know how to reconcile this unless I'm talking to someone like you about it or putting it on paper. Um, a lot of the poems in the book have to do with that. The first poem called Tattooist Needle Jewish Museum. I think I read this one at the reading. Um, it's the first poem in the book. Um, I, I do think my, you know, my publisher helped me uh, order it and she put it in the first, as the first poem. And I think that was a really good choice. So Tattooist Needle Jewish Museum. I come from women starving for sleep, chapped lips stuck to deflated breasts, a prisoner's palm clenched and closed under his control. His fingers steered me where to crawl, dig and drag through convoys of skin. He taught me the art of etching and scraping numbers into arms. I hold drops of dried blood and luck on my tip. So it's, it comes from the point of view of the needle itself and of the person who might have been a capo. And during World War II, a capo was actually someone who was a prisoner in the camps already that were that was ordered to do all these atrocities. And if they didn't, they were killed. So again, understanding that this is not in a sense laying down arms for arms. This is, this is survival. You know, this is what we've come to. This is the tragedy. Oh my God, I have a person who I might know and love going to their death and I'm writing a number into the, into their arm like they're a barcode in a store. Wow. Again, it's, I, 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 <laughs> I don't know. If, I don't know if this is going to, this conversation is going to change anything. No, yeah, no, but you know why? But I think at the end of the day, it's a conversation that needs to be had, right? Like, like I always yeah. tell people, listen, we all have a story to tell. We all have some conversations that need to be had. So I, I thank you for trusting me enough to talk about this conversation. Because it's true what you said. It's so true. And it's like, 
I always because for me, I I don't know too much about that culture, but I what I what I do know is this, right? What I do know is I always ask myself why does this happen, right? Because I'm I'm a board I'm by category, um, and people people could, people always knock me for this, but it's what it is. I always say by category I'm a born again Christian, but um, as far as like. The word, I've always drifted away from the Christianity word, but as far as Jesus, I always believe in Jesus no matter what. Um, I always ask myself, like, why does why is this allowed? Why does God allow this? Or why does civilization allow this to happen? Why does it even happen like that? Um, again, I don't know too much about the Holocaust, but what I do is know, like, like I see that to me, it's like my soul cries because it's like... Even though I was sheltered and I've never been through that kind of a situation, but at times in my eyes, like like when I was living at home, it felt like that. But I could never say that really realistically now because I'm like, wait a minute. But if I had it bad, they had it worse. And it's mm-hmm. like, like you said about the barcode thing, like that. That's um, is it just makes me sad because I'm like, damn. Like all, I think just like everybody else, we just want to enjoy life. Mm-hmm. And I hate the idea that the 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 philosophy of one person's life is what caused all of this to happen. And it's like, you know, and I feel like it's not talked about enough. I No, it's not talked enough about enough. Um, I don't know if we know how to talk about it. I think artists know how to talk about it. I think that um, poets know how to talk about it. I think actors definitely know how to talk about it. Um, but where maybe it's not knowing exactly what to say but maybe it's more of going back to this idea of vulnerability and where does vulnerability come from vulnerability comes from creativity mm-hmm. i i'm a firm believer of that but in order to get down to the marrow of who we are you have to sit in that chair in solitude going back to quarantine and and say to yourself, I'm gonna let these, I'm gonna let these tears stream. Fuck it. I'm gonna let these tears stream. And that's gonna be the end of it. And I'm gonna let my imagination and my mind control this. Um, I'm sorry, I'm gonna let my imagination and my mind go and not control this because if I try to control it, I'm not gonna go where I want to. It's what Federico Garcia Lorca called one day. Um, the brilliant Spanish poet who died too young because he was a revolutionary and was fucking executed Ooh. for rebelling against um, no, no, I don't want to even want to go into it because it'll start a holy war on, on radio but uh, <laughs> but you know he did believe he did believe that in order to it's Duende was an, is an outside force um, for the most part that is something unexplainable about that occurs in the mind that occurs in a heart. So if you need to imagine um, a goddess or a God outside of your being in order to get down to your soul, that's going to let you write about, you know, you ask the muse that's going to let you write about um, an assault that happened to you 30 years ago, let it go. But we don't know how to do that because we're so afraid of what the interior might become in terms of exterior, right? It's about chiseling down to that marrow that I mentioned. Um, 
it's you know writing a poem talking if if we want to talk about the process writing a poem is a lot like sculpting you just begin with a slab a marble you don't know where it's going to go you might have an idea oh i want to i want to i i i want to sculpt um a woman right um after she comes out of a bath and i want i know i want to have a towel wrapped around her but you don't know if it's going to end up that way. And if it doesn't, you need to go with it. You know, it is Keats. It is the um, negative capability. It is about being uncertain and being okay in that uncertainty. And I think one of the greatest lessons we learned about living in quarantine was um, this is uncertainty. This is the definitive definition of uncertainty. We don't know what is happening. Um, I don't know how many millions of people died. I remember looking at the New York Times and the cover was just names and somehow they shrunk the font and it was like 800,000 names wow. Andy, wow. of people who had passed. How do you how do you wrap your head around that? We don't. I, 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 I can't wrap around it right now just you talking about it because I'm like, wow, that's a lot of, Wow. Because I think about that, I also think about, like, you know, when, you know, 9-11 happened, too, all these names of people that just, you know, living an everyday life, coming home from whatever, whether they were on vacation or they were just visiting family, and now certain people don't get to see these people anymore. And then same thing with you saying with 800,000 names, like, th- like the fact that they had to shrink the font because it was so many names like that, yeah. that that's, that's wild. I, I could never understand something like that. That's that, wow. I, I do think the only way getting to that is by, you know, <laughs> if you look at um, Picasso and, and, and the trajectory of his paintings and his life and that blue period, probably one of the most important periods, right? Um, and and just getting down to the idea, you know, for example, I'm going to write about um, an ex-boyfriend who abused me. Well, how are you going to do that? You're going to sit in a chair and you're going to start with something and it might not go exactly the way you want. And then something is going to open up your unconscious your 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 unconscious is going to come out and play are you ready for that wow are you you ready for that and you know um you, you sit in that chair you glue yourself to that chair and you say this is this is my history this is who i am and you don't know what's going to happen. You could publish that book and someone might find it and they can call and, and they can contact you or they can meet you and say, you don't know what that book did for me. I don't think that's the reason to create art. However, I do think it's one of the consequences of creating the greatest art. The only reason To Kill a Mockingbird is being <laughs> banned is because of its, if, because of its legacy, because mm. it's time. Because it's timeless. It's fantastic that it's being banned. You know why it's being banned? Because it's being read. Like these people don't realize that you're banning a book, but you're reading the book at the same time and you're not letting it in. If you let it in and you mm. let it seep to the recesses of your soul, well, yeah, you have a black man being accused in the deep south wow. of raping a woman and he's being defended by a poor white lawyer 
in the deep south you want to talk about isolation you want to talk about quarantine this is during the great depression there's nothing to do there's nowhere to go a day was 24 hours long but it felt like you know much longer than that and that's straight from the you know a lot of the prologue in the film but um what what i'm saying is that we've been in quarantine a long time mentally mm-hmm. mm. we just don't we we just don't know it wow wow i am <laughs> oh my god no because everything you're saying that's speaking to me right now because that's i feel like you know what it is i feel like we just connected our brains together and it's like oh wait we think alike because that's i mean like obviously your your story is a little bit different from how i understand life but Somewhere down the middle, we understand that. Like, I love that. We've been in quarantine for a long time, but we just don't know it. It's true. Because um, like, like, like I said earlier, isolation to me is normal, right? You don't have a son, have a wife. But there are moments where I need to be isolated sometimes because when I'm out and about for a long time, I get very uncomfortable. So I have it kind of like a turtle. I kind of hide yeah. inside my shell. At times, that's just something I've been going through even since childhood. I've always been that guy. And yes, um, that's not good, but sometimes that's not bad. Because I feel like that's like I feel like those isolation moments should be the moment of reflection to appreciate, but to understand, like, hey, listen, it ain't gonna always be like this. Tomorrow's not gonna be promised. That's the reality of life, and it's okay. You know? Yeah. Like it's it's okay. Um I, I oh my god Melissa I love this wow <laughs> I think it's the reason we need movies I think it's the reason we need bad TV I think it's mm-hmm. the reason we need to binge watch um you know whatever you binge watch on Netflix or whatever platform you use you know and I'm not saying that that's the greatest vice but it sure hell is better than going and getting blasted and then bringing home that anger to your family you know um I I, I do think that our respite is in sport, is in, you know, bad creativity or even good creativity. You know, it doesn't have to be as deep as the Mississippi. I'm not saying that. But if you're if if you're willing to say to yourself, how much do I want to risk here and 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 really try to change something on a small scale? I think the pen will always, you know, um, work. Um I, I was talking about Field of Dreams before. I want to go into that for a moment. Um, That's fine. The, the, the movie theater that my mom took me to, I only remember seeing a couple movies there, and, and one of them was Field of Dreams. Um, Field of Dreams was a baseball movie that came out in 1989. It starred Kevin Costner. He played a, a, a farmer. I'm not going to give too much away. I want, it's in a poem, but it goes into something we were just talking about movie world where I saw Field of Dreams closes. The marquee is missing. There's no one in black and white to put up a new film titled by hand. Nothing but negative space fills frames to display the latest flicks. Someone kicked in the glass. It's ruptured but not broken. Through a prism of cracks, no popcorn lid is being pushed up by jumpy kernels ready to dive into a bucket filled with butter. Construction workers didn't roll the carpet after tearing it up. It lies crumped like a corpse in the fetal position at the center of the lobby. A stranger took a heat gun to the wallpaper until it wilted and melted. It drapes like a face desperate for good news. 
On a pillow, drip drops of paint covered Gene Kelly's silhouette, fedora, and his umbrella. My eyes wet with yesterday tried to reach the brass banister, gone. A doorless corridor leads to the theater where I sat on my legs at ten in a creaky seat to see over a stranger. Shoeless Joe Jackson's ghost strolled through corn stalks to a baseball field built by a farmer named Ray, who plowed his corn and created a diamond after a vision and voice told him, if you build it, he will come. I've always just gone with the dream, building a baseball field to bring back his father's hero, even though I don't like it when bankrupt Ray leaves his wife and daughter to hunt the voice telling him to ease his pain. I cheer for him. Like when I root for myself in those unreal hours, trying to be that selfish, that human, wishing for my dead to rise from dreams. Ray turns up a hundred miles from home on the doorstep of his favorite writer who's washed up for decades. Even after he fakes a finger in his coat pocket is a gun, almost gets hit with a crowbar by the pacifist poet and kidnaps the writer to a game at Fenway. I stick with the story, waiting for anything that tips the balance of the mundane in favor of the surreal. Some nights I still walk the distance listening to one street lamp sputtering hope. In secondhand stores, I dust off calendars searching for 1989, wishing the world would go back in time to when I was young. I can only plead with the moon to light up the ghosts of those I've lost, bright as a movie marquee, before they vanish or get close enough to reach out for me. So it's the idea behind... Um, we spend our entire, I, I, I really do believe we, a lot of us spend our entire life searching and searching and searching, but half the time what we think we're searching for is not what we're searching for. I think we spend most of our time searching for who we are, who we were as children, when, when we were the non, non-judgmental self, where everyone we love was still, might have still been alive. And every dream we had had the possibility of actually occurring and um, coming to fruition. But more than that, we spend the rest of our lives moving, trying to get back into the womb where some safety is, right? Where we are swimming in amniotic fluid that is brought to us and the food is brought to us by our first caretaker, right? I mean, aren't our mothers our first loves, right? but we spend so much time ignoring that we spent we, we spend so much time trying to figure out who we are in these sound bites on instagram and facebook and then when we're then we get upset when someone doesn't like us and it means that they don't like us anymore and they're going to quote unquote cancel us because we said something a little too vulnerable to them so and it hurt their feelings and they don't know how to react so what do we do we shut the screen down it turns black as we turn black and 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 when we turn we turn black inside, it's like this bile. It doesn't have to be there. When all we need to do is understand that we're enough, but we don't we don't understand that. We we have to push it. We have to become kings. We have to become queens. We have to become presidents. We have to become whatever position that this this chaotic world creates in order to what we think is stimulate organization. And, and create an organization. Wow. But I, I don't know if we're doing that. Wow. That, <laughs> oh my God. I'm so like, wow. And it's true. It, it's so true. Um, I think, and, and I'll end it with this before I ask the next question. But um, 
I think that's the problem. I think we feel like we need to know, so we have to have the answer instead of just saying, hey, I don't know, I don't have the answer, let me get back to you, or hey, why don't we talk, have a conversation so we can figure out the answer, even if the answer is wrong, right? Yeah. And it's like everything is like, no, this is what it is because I have to have this. And one thing me and my wife always talk about is a lot of us like the idea of something, but we don't understand the responsibilities of that thing, right? Because sometimes with what you want and what you get and with the responsibilities of it always comes a consequence, right? If you don't understand the responsibility, then you're not going to understand how to handle the consequences of what you're trying to be responsible over. It's like, and this is why I get mad about this whole, um, like, I, like I was saying earlier, I'm a born again Christian. So I even get mad with the congregation because everybody wants to be a Christian, but don't really understand what it is to live it. And mm -hmm. it's like, 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 it's like a clothing line. Oh, I got Gucci too. Oh, look, I'm a Christian too. Oh, hey, um, I got this too. Like even in poetry, I noticed in today's society, people just write because it's cool, but like, I don't think a lot of people really live that, right? They just say, mm -hmm. just so because it sounds kind of cool, like, uh, like, 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 say, you and me, where we actually have stories, we back it up with what we're saying, and it's like, okay, like, you just, like, some people just want to relate just so they can say, oh, okay, it's cool to relate, but not really understanding the sacrifice and the pain we had to go through for us to write yeah. that piece. Yeah. And, and I think that's the saddest part, you know? But, um, like, I, it's like you said, like I said, um, uh, we can go on for hours because this is good. I feel like we definitely, should have a part two soon for sure because this is so good um that sounds great oh my god so because we are towards the end and um i trust me i really want to go on for hours right now because <laughs> this is so good um so i always ask everybody this question and um I'll, I'll leave it at this um when we're not here anymore like when people hear melissa fadu what do you want people to remember you by? What do you want to leave behind that when they hear your name? Oh, okay. This is what I remember about this person. What would you love that to be in your eyes? Tenderness. 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 Um, tenderness in terms of understanding that I'll sit with you. You want me to listen? I'll listen. I might interrupt if you don't want me to. I'm sorry about that. But um, I'll listen. And that um, that tenderness comes from a self-respect that took a long time. And with that self-respect comes a firmness that also includes boundaries and I don't think we understand boundaries today as, as well um I think tenderness is the most important thing right now for me and that yeah and it's hard it's very very hard to live in a society where that again is seen as just weakness Wow. Mm, I, I gotta let that sink in for a second because that is wow. <laughs> wow. 
No, again, I. This is why I created this platform to have these stories. So I love what you said. It's, and it, I. I feel like to me, it's that simple. Let's just have tenderness. I love that. I'm. I mean, I might interrupt you here and there, but let's listen. Yeah, I. I love that. That is wow. Yeah, that's powerful to be honest with you. So thank you so much. Thank you. This oh was great. God. This was this was really great. Yes, yes. So Melissa, yeah, I could, yeah. I could talk to you all day. <laughs> yes. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh my god. So Melissa, thank you so much for um just doing this episode with me. We should definitely eventually do a part two because I think this is good stuff. We definitely got to have these conversations. And, um, yeah, thank you so much, everybody, that's listening to this episode. And um, until next time, um, everybody, have a great day.